Good morning. I'm Janice. Like she said, I'm super honored to be here with you. And you picked a really great Sunday to be here. We are launching into a new uh, series. And we are so excited about this series that we actually painted the whole wall to match. And we had these super cool shirts made to go with it. In this series over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the letters to the early church which speak about how to operate and conduct ourselves or themselves. It addresses key issues of the time. And it really gives us a great how-to of how to walk out following Jesus and doing community and relationship as a church. Obviously, our mission statement doesn't encompass everything that's going to be in these books, and everything in our mission statement doesn't only come from these books. But we thought that this was a great time to launch in and to talk more about our mission, about who we are as Blue Ash Community Church, who we are as the Big C Church, and who we are as God's kids. Today, we're going to jump right into Romans, and we're going to jump right into our identity as children of God. The Apostle Paul is the majority writer of the New Testament, and we talked about him a little bit last week and his missionary journey, and if you missed that, I encourage you to check that out with um, Andy's message. Paul was imprisoned and eventually martyred for his faith. He has an amazing conversion story from persecutor of Christians to chief gospel promoters. So many people think that the Bible is the most important book, and a lot of theologians say that within that book, Romans is one of the greatest. They say that it might be the purest explanation of the good news of the gospel, and quite possibly the most transformative book of the Bible. J.J. Packer says this of it, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what might happen. Today we're going to land in Romans chapter 8, and in a book touted as maybe the greatest, uh, there are some people that have dubbed this the best book within that Bible and nicknamed it Great Eight. So chapter 8 might have some of the most quoted and taken out of context verses in the Bible. So if you're thinking to yourself as I'm teaching, you want to put your hands on your hips and have an argument, but what about this verse? I say, let's get together after church, because as much time as we have this morning, we cannot talk about everything that is in chapter 8. But I do think God wants us to come to him with open hearts, with our questions, with what does this really mean? And I pray that as we read Romans, we allow it to penetrate. I pray you hear the good news and it takes root in your heart and you allow yourself to accept the true gift and your true identity deeper than you ever have before and that you understand just how entirely loved you are and that that transforms you and you live differently, not because God needs you to, but how can you not live differently when God loves you like that? So before we settle in grade 8, let's zoom out just a little bit. Paul is writing a letter in the book of Romans. This isn't an academic exercise. This isn't a historical record. This is written to real people. In fact, in the last chapter, when he's closing down his letter, he mentions people by name. It would be as if he said, 
hey, say hi to Andy and Jana for me and everyone in their small group. Give greetings to Taylor and to Shonda. This is a letter to real people with real problems. They had jobs, they had families, and they probably struggled with things. If you know Roman history, you know they struggled with division in the church, but they also probably struggled with idolatry, with gossip, maybe with some addiction or impatience. Make no mistake about it. This is a real letter to real people, so we can say this letter is for us, okay? Romans begins with an explanation of the truth of the gospel and all that Jesus has done. When we get to chapter 8, it starts with, therefore. So therefore, based on all the truths that Paul has already told us in the first seven chapters about all that God has done for us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So therefore, because of the truth of the gospel, because Jesus died for you and rose again, because God became flesh and endured death, there is now no condemnation if you are in Christ. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to perform. God knows who you are, and he loves you just the same. All right, now you've been wondering what's this beach ball for. I have this little beach ball. This is a sign of winter, not the sign of my sin, but also this beach ball. Have you ever tried to hold a beach ball, especially like that, under the water? It's kind of hard. You're going to struggle. It's going to wobble. And even if people can't see that you're holding a beach ball under the water, they're going to know something is off about you trying to hold your big giant beach ball. And eventually, it's going to shoot up, it's going to come to the surface, it's going to make a big splash, and people are going to see it. That's how it is with our sin, too. And the reality is, God knows everything about you. He sees your sin even when we think it's hidden under the water. So if you come talk to me about a struggle that I'm having or about a sin you see in my life, Friends, I don't have to pretend that I don't see it or pretend it's not there or that I somehow have it all together. God already knows. He knows about me and my weaknesses. He knows about you and your propensity for sin. Now, that isn't a license for sin, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But you can bring that sin into the light. You can talk to God about it, and we can talk about it. Because God is not surprised, and he loves us anyway. Because God did what we cannot, our flesh, it's weak, and it's sinful. But we have redemption in Jesus. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says it like this. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We cannot earn it. We cannot obey enough. We cannot clean ourselves enough or be good enough. But Jesus, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are released from the penalty of sin. And even more than that, through his resurrection with the Spirit, we are released from the bondage of sin. 
Romans says it like this in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, I want to dig in just a little bit into verse 5 there where it says, set your mind on what the Spirit desires. This doesn't mean just think a lot of holy thoughts or think a lot about Jesus inside of your head. If we go back even just a little bit in our culture and we explore the meaning of the word mind as a verb, someone might say, hey, mind your manners. Or they might say, mind your head on that cabinet as you walk through the kitchen. Or you might say to your kids when you're leaving, mind the babysitter. The Oxford Dictionary gives us kind of these two definitions for mind as a verb. It says, regard as important, feel concern about. And it's used to urge someone to remember or to take care to bring something about. So instead of set your mind on the spirit or just mind the spirit, we might say obey, focus on, or don't ignore. Listen to and respond to the Spirit. Don't live according to the flesh. Rather, focus on and concern yourself with what the Spirit desires. It's fair to say that your life is shaped by what occupies your mind. The question is, what is that? What is at the edges of your mind? Romans tells us it should be the desires of the Spirit. But what does the Spirit desire? Well, Funny you should ask. The Spirit desires, and Jesus demonstrates in his life the Father's heart. So we can look at Jesus' life as an example and see what the desires of the Spirit are. Things like loving our neighbor, bringing peace, healing, caring for our enemies, drawing close to those at the margins that we would rather forget or leave out. The Spirit is about expanding the kingdom of God. So let's finish these verses that tell us about what God has done for us. In verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. As I read this, I can't help but notice all the ifs. In chapter 8, there are actually 10 ifs. And the cool thing about them, they're not if you're good enough, if you love well enough, if you don't swear, if you don't have an addiction, or if you're just a good person. They know. They are if you are in the Spirit, and if the Spirit is who we say He is, then here's the truth we live in. And none of that depends on us. It is all about who God is and what He has done for you. Verse 12 goes on and it says, Therefore, because of who the Spirit is, because of what God has done, brothers and sisters, We have an obligation, but that is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put to, 
Uh oh, hold on. I lost my spot on that one. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. All right, why do we have an obligation to live this way, to live by the Spirit? We act out of love not out of legalism. We do not have to. Think of the little kiddo who runs out into a field and sees these flowers, and they're gathering and picking the flowers, and they're running them back over to their grown-up. Not because the grown-up will love them more because of the flowers or less without them, but because that little kiddo saw the beauty and felt the joy of those flowers and wanted to share it with their grown-up. Friends, this is us. We please God because he loves us and we want to love him back in return. When we enter into a covenant relationship, it isn't about the legal obligation or about the law. Take marriage, for example. I don't not cheat on my husband because it's not a legal thing to do. I actually don't even consider the law. I don't do it because I don't want to hurt him. But let's get real honest here, and let's say that sometimes I do things that could hurt or grieve his heart. That's true. And I'm broken, and I know you probably don't do this, and you can judge me. It's okay. God already knows. Sometimes I do things that might hurt him, and I I actually know that it might hurt him when I'm doing it, and I still do it anyway. And again, we can talk about that because God knows, and he loves me anyway. But here's the really good news. The more that I'm minding the spirit, this actually happens less and less. When I allow the truth of the gospel and what God has done for me, what he's done for us to transform me, to change me, I begin to desire a different life with different fruit. I begin to desire sin less. Now, we all know, we, well, we don't, maybe you don't know, but we will all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that we will all sin again. But God is working on us. He promises to not leave us the way we are. And we don't have to hide our beach ball no matter what it is. He knows about it. He loves you. He forgives you. And as we continue to understand who God is and spend time with him, our desire to please him will grow and our desire for sin will lessen. This won't happen overnight. Uh, We watched a video last week um, from Lee Strobel and Andy highlighted it really well. It will happen over time. Your desire for the promises of God will change. Your desire to not sin will change. And that's good news. But even better than that, on the other side of that equation, when we take our eyes off of ourselves and what we have to do, when we enter into a covenant relationship with God, we enter into a covenant relationship with God, with the creator of the universe. He is bound to us. When we accept his love, his gift of mercy, he comes for us. We get 100% of God. Now, it might be hard for some of us to believe that we can really get 100% of God, but I actually want to challenge you because I think that we get more than that. I think we get even 200%. God loves you. You were his idea. He created you 100%. He loves you. And then again, he redeemed you 100%. He came for you. He made a way for you, and he loves you, and that's 200%. 200% God is for you. 
Is it that we can't believe that God is 100% for us because we might be holding something back? We might not be 100% for God, but I promise you, even if we're holding something back, God is not. God is God, and we can surrender all. And here's a little bit more about why. The truth is, in verse 14 it says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Today, allow yourself to accept your role as child of God. You are adopted into his family. If you know any families who have adopted children, like marriage, this is not simply a legal agreement. This is a choice that you make to bind your heart to someone else's heart forever. It is about love and the full rights as family, about being an heir and the apple of someone's eye. This passage also tells us we can live with security and without fear. It gives us authorities as owners, not as employees. It also gives us intimacy. It tells us we can cry out, Abba, which is like daddy. It's a nickname. It's tender. This passage also gives us the assurance that the Spirit testifies to this truth. It answers the question, how do we know we are children of God? We know. The Spirit testifies to it. So for some of us today, it's about accepting that you are 100% loved by 100% of God. You are fully a child of God. And Paul tells us, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So we learn a little bit more about ourselves as children of God. We have an inheritance as co-heirs to heaven. But with privilege comes some responsibility. And we learn here that we'll have discipline. And that might look like suffering and sharing in the suffering of Christ. I actually read while I was preparing for this that the number one reason people abandon their faith in God is suffering. Friends, we will suffer in this life. But that does not change who God is. If we are God's kids, then we are co-heirs with Christ, sharing in the fullness of eternity. And if we share in the suffering of Christ, we share in the glory of heaven. <laughs> Paul goes on to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Do not hear me say that our suffering is nothing. I feel the heaviness of suffering I hear your suffering. I share in that suffering. Paul shares in our suffering. He wrote to us from chains. He wrote to us from cold, drafty, stone prisons that do not have running water. I'll let you picture that yourself. He knew about suffering and about captivity, and yet he teaches us about the freedom we have as children of God. Paul knows that when compared with what is to come, this present suffering just won't matter to us as much. 
And if you add to that, I don't believe God wastes anything, even suffering. We might not always be able to know why we suffer, but Paul talks about suffering right next to the very quoted verse in the same chapter. So the same chapter with suffering also says that God works things together for our good. And for a lot of us, that's hard to reconcile. So Romans 28 says this, And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So here's the deal. I don't actually believe that my idea of what's good for me is exactly the same as God's idea. The Bible tells us that God's ways are not my ways. So I don't actually have to have it all fully figured out and understand it, which to me is really good news. But I also believe that the good that God wants for you is that you would continue to grow and to walk in your identity as his child. And I think that is the good that he wants for you. This is how he works things together for your good, to continue to grow you as an image bearer. We know from Genesis that we're made in the image of God, and I believe in our adoption he wants to increase our family resemblance. I believe he will use the hard, he will use the suffering to continue to grow us, to grow you, to grow me, to be more and more like him, to grow our family resemblance to him and to his image. And while we are walking through this suffering, he doesn't just say, see you later. Romans 8 tells us, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's not only for us, but he's interceding. That word interceding has been a couple of times in this passage. So we've got a definition. Strong's um, Bible Dictionary says it gives you kind of two parts. The first part is for the benefit, and the second part is to come in line with or to confer benefit. Merriam-Webster says it a little more in maybe some English words, to intervene to reconcile differences. The Holy Spirit brings us into alignment with, the whole, with God, with himself, for our benefit. Jesus does this too, actually, in verse 34. Let's read. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. You might remember from verse 1. There is no condemnation. Why? Because Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus who right now is at the right hand of the Father, is also interceding and acting on our behalf. That is how much God is for us. That is how much he cares about us, and he loves us. All right, time for some audience participation. Who's heard of Drew Brown? Ah, no one. Woohoo! Who has heard of Muhammad Ali? Come on now. All right, all right. For you youngins, Muhammad Ali is actually um, credited with inventing the term goat, He was a heavyweight boxer, and um, Drew Brown was his trainer. He helped to teach him to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. He trained Ali for fights and encouraged him and even decided when it was time to end a fight. He was an incredible corner man. It was said of Brown that he 
charged Ali's battery. When I go into the ring or when I go into the battle of this life, I want someone in my corner who trains me, who believes in me, who sticks up for me, and who charges my battery. And we have not only that. We have such an amazing corner man. He created us. He redeemed us. He intercedes us for us and brings us into his will. He promises us his rest, his peace, and his strength. But actually, we really want to flip that script. We want to make our corner man the name that is fully known. So maybe this is a little bit of a more worthwhile example. Some of you in here have probably heard of Stacey King, but most of us have not. He won three NBA championships in the early 90s, along with someone else you might know. Shout it out if you know it. Ooh, Michael Jordan. I'm hearing the murmur of it. Yes, Michael Jordan. Here's the cool thing about Stacey King. The story is told that on the night of the NBA Finals in this particular year, he played three minutes and scored one point. And you know what? He got a championship ring. Urban legend tells us that King Think says, I think of that as the night I combined with Michael Jordan for 70 points. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Stacy got a ring, and it didn't have a disclaimer. He didn't get part of a ring. It didn't matter that he only played a few minutes and didn't contribute as much as Michael Jordan. He got a ring, and this is how we ought to live. We want to bring whatever we have. And for me, when I bring my whatever I have to what God has, it definitely feels sometimes even greater than one to God's 69. But we bring it to God, and he will use it to win the championship for his glory, to lift his name high. I hope to add my one point and know that it is enough because we walk in the truth that we are co-heirs. We are fully loved and fully redeemed. We are adopted into God's family. He is for us and there is no caveat, no asterisks. In fact, as we live in that love at the end of chapter 8, Paul gets a little carried away with some praise, as we should too. This is good news. So we want to grandstand a little. Paul asks some rhetorical questions about how awesome God is. Verse 31 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who in their right mind can be against a God who loves like this? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God sent his son to redeem you, why do you think he would leave you or forget you? Why do you think he would go to all of that trouble to rescue you and to redeem you, to put his spirit in you and then hide his will from you? Why do you not trust that he will meet your needs? Why would he abandon you now? He simply wouldn't. He simply won't. He loves you too much, even 200%. Verse 33 and 34 that we already talked about a little bit also ask a question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Remember, there is no condemnation. God has put us in right standing with him, and Jesus paid the price for us. 
Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As I read that, those things seem to me a little bit more like a who, but it doesn't actually matter. God is more powerful. He defeated death. As we read on, it says, As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's look at that word just because I like big words. Let's look at that word that translates to more than conquerors. It's hupernikau from the Greek, and this means to go beyond conquest, to hyper-conquer, or to over-conquer. To conquer is just simply to defeat your enemy, and that's pretty cool. But to over-conquer is to make the enemy serve your own purpose. God has delivered us from our suffering. He defeated death. And not only that, he made the suffering serve his good purpose. What Satan intended for evil, God uses for good. He has more than conquered sin and death. And as co-heirs who share in the image of God, that makes us more than conquerors. Now, I know most of us don't walk up and introduce ourselves that way. I actually normally just use my name, Janice. I don't say I'm, a, I'm more than a conqueror. But that is how we want to live. It is who you are. You are the image of God. You are more than a conqueror. And as if that isn't enough, Paul goes on to say in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What if we read this starting at verse 31 with, if God is for us, who can be against us every single day this week? What if you read it to the backdrop of the Rocky theme? <laughs> what would that do for you to know that this is how the creator of the universe thinks of you, the most important person in, the, in your life and in the world? This is how he thinks of you. Okay, since we're grandstanding in praise a little bit, if Romans 8 were a song, in 1977, the British brand Queen, I know it's before some of you were born, go with me here, it's okay, it's all right, I still bet you will know this song. In 1977, they debuted a song that science claims is one of the catchiest songs in pop history. And when I say it, you might even almost sing it. We are the champions. Of the world. Yes, yes. If Romans was an album, More Than Conquerors would be the title track. It would be our power ballad. The melody starts with there is no condemnation. And it ends with nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The baseline is all things work together for good. But the high falsetto is we are more than conquerors. That is our truth. We are more than championship champions. We have the championship ring. And to think of yourself as anything less than who you are in Christ is to live falsely. As children of God, you can be bold in going to the missing. You can be known for your love. 
we can be known for our love, for our reckless love. When you go into the ring of life or the battle of life, the battle isn't actually yours to win or lose. The battle belongs to the Lord, to your corner man, whose name you want lifted high. And friends, go excitedly into that battle because the battle is already won. So what does that mean for us? If this is our theme song, if the God of the universe, whose purpose is unchangeable, whose power is undefeatable, and whose love is unconditional, loves you and came for you? Let's talk about next steps. What does that really mean for us? Maybe today you accept that gift of God's love and you let it penetrate into your heart. You decide that just because you hold, God, you hold out on God, he will not hold out on you and you surrender. Maybe today you decide you really want to live as one of God's kids, one of his precious and beloved kids. Maybe today that you decide to walk as a child of God without a spirit of fear. Or maybe today you want to put to death sin and the things of the flesh through the Holy Spirit. But what does that look like? Well, it could be, it could look like confessing to God your sin, the sin that you've been trying to wrestle down on your own and in your own power, bringing it to God and allowing him to transform you. Because remember, he already sees it. Maybe today you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And that could look like soaking in the Word of God and reading your Bible. Andy likes to say, get in the Word so the Word gets into you. Romans is transforming. There's really beautiful testimonies from Paul and others of them reading this book and it changing their life. Jump in this week with the reading plan. That We have journals back there that have it. Or simply read Romans 8. Or maybe read those last verses from 31 to 39 a few times this week and play the Rocky theme and see what it does for you. Let those verses soak in about whose you are. Or our memory verse that was on your seat that you got that was here today when you walked in, it's from this chapter. Memorize that. Write it on your heart. If one of those next steps connects with you, write that down on your connect card. We want to pray for you on this journey as you walk as one of God's kids. Another next step could be that you want to pray. There are so many ways to do that here at BACC. We have a super sweet prayer wall back there, and you can get up and you can write your prayer on that tag and hang it up. You can cry out to God. But if getting up isn't your thing, you can write it on your Connect card. You can do that now and drop that in the offering here in a, in a second when we receive that. Or you can write it during worship. There's a black box back there. You can put it in. It's labeled for your Connect card. You could also schedule a prayer 30. The staff would be honored to pray with you for a longer time during the week. So write that on your Connect card if that interests you. You can use prayer at BACC.com and you can email us if you're online, but also during the week because we don't just need prayer on Sundays. We would be privileged to partner with you in prayer during the week. Just shoot us an email. Or maybe you do want to come for a prayer in person. You can come for a prayer over anything, big or small anything that God is doing in your life, anything from this message that hit or something that you are bringing with you that's outside of this. 
Having prayed with different prayer teams here, I can tell you the Holy Spirit is moving and there is power in the prayer of our prayer teams. No more or less than in your own personal prayers, but sometimes in community, God speaks through other people. There will be a prayer team back here and one over here. And I can also promise you confidentiality and that they actually want to pray with you. It is their blessing and their honor. I wanna challenge you, if you normally leave right now, maybe pause and see if God is doing something. And if you might need to sit and stay in here a little bit, even if the music's not your thing or singing isn't your thing, maybe press in during this time. We're gonna have our ushers come forward and receive our offering. You can drop your next steps in there or any prayer requests that you wrote on your connect card. And if you came prepared to give, this is where we will receive an offering. Thank you for the ways that you invest in the kingdom and in the work that God is doing. And then we wanna enter a time of prayer, musical worship and communion. So hopefully you grabbed your communion elements on your way in and if you didn't, you can get up now and go get them, but don't leave. <laughs> Please don't leave. <laughs> You're not distracting though if you get up. Taking communion is simply our way to remember the sacrifice of Jesus who paid it all, who went to the cross, suffered, died, and defeated death so we can be more than conquerors and co-heirs. And we remember the power that raised Jesus from the dead made us children. God testifies to it and intercedes on our behalf. And in this communion, we pause and we remember. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us and you made a way for us. Thank you for the book of Romans and that you're still doing transforming works today. Thank you that you make all things new. To you be the power and the glory forever. Lord, we invite you, we beg you to move in this place, to have your way with this time as we lift our eyes to you and we open our hearts to what you want to do in us and through us. I pray all of this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus.